Over a high desert sky, the pale blue earth is seen over the horizon. As a B-29 rumbles higher and higher with an experimental aircraft strapped to its belly, ready to release. It drops, dropping a man aiming to make history with a broken rib and pain rushing through his body. The experimental aircraft gains speed as it rattles, rattling around, fighting for the controls. This young pilot is pushing to the limit, getting faster and faster and faster and faster and boom! He made history, but not yet. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Cleo History. My name is Matt. And I'm RC. And this is episode one of the Space Shuttle series, The Jocks Who Built the Foundation. That man in the experimental aircraft was a 24-year-old Chuck Yeager. Yeager, born in 1923 in West Virginia, developed that West Virginia drawl at a young age, which would become crucial later on in his life when he reaches the top of the ziggurat. We'll get into that later. For a young man like Jaeger, growing up with farmer parents, there wasn't really a lot going for him. But in 1941, World War II came to the United States, and a young Jaeger enlisted in the United States Army Air Corps to fly airplanes. With little to no education beyond high school, Chuck was really stretching it, but the war effort was desperate for pilots, and Chuck had something in him. Something that isn't really known yet, but it has the stuff of good pilots. After enlisting, Chuck was saddened to learn that he wasn't eligible for flight training because of his age, but with persistence and grit, Jaeger was able to eventually become a pilot and be assigned to his first squadron of P-51 Mustangs in 1943, fighting over the skies of Europe. After his eighth mission over France, he was shot down, eventually meeting up with the French Resistance. The French Resistance smuggled a young Jaeger over the Pyrenees Mountains into Spain, in which he served a brief, brief stint in Spanish prison, eventually escaping and making his way back to England. This was Jaeger's first brush with death, but it wouldn't be his last, as Jaeger got back into the seat of the P-51 Mustang to fight over Europe once again. Jaeger, after returning to the skies of Europe to fight again, shot down five planes in one day, giving him his first ace of the day, a special honor amongst World War II pilots. Jaeger also earned the great honor of shooting down a ME-262, the first jet aircraft, in his P-51 Mustang. Jaeger is then quoted as saying that one of the first jet aircrafts he ever saw was one he shot down. In 1945, with the Red Army at the gates, Adolf Hitler killed himself, and then subsequently, soon after, Germany surrendered. Shortly after, the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, which then forced them to surrender as well. The war being over, Chuck Yeager had to find new things to do with his aviation prowess. No longer could glory be found in fighting other planes. Now he had to fly planes that no one had ever flown before. 
This naturally took him to California, where all the hot aviation jets were flying. Specifically, Edwards Air Force Base, or at the time before it was renamed, Miroc Air Force Base. The dry lake bed, which served as the testing ground for planes, was good because there was not much infrastructure to be destroyed if planes were to crash or blow up or just fail to take off. This lack of infrastructure extended everywhere else, though, so the pilots living there were living effectively in squalor. Hot conditions, desert climate, very little to do other than go to a shack that served alcohol called ponchos. But... Despite all this, it was the place to be if you wanted to be the fastest, the highest, or just the coolest pilot around. This new world of pilots had a little unspeaking code amongst them. It was this unbuilt, unexisting, other than in their heads, ziggurat. A old Sumerian pyramid that has steps going up and up and up and up and up. In order to climb it, you had to achieve great things in aviation. There was first becoming a pilot in general. That was the first step on the ziggurat. Then there was being a fighter pilot. That was step two on the ziggurat. And at the top of the ziggurat was this unbreakable, some would say not even possible to do task called breaking the sound barrier. And that is what these guys out in Miroc set out to do developing this new plane to break the sound barrier, along with other planes, like ones that don't have wings. These were killing pilots left and right, but that is exactly what they wanted because, in their minds, being at Miroc was climbing this invisible cigarette to get to the top of Pilot Valhalla, being the top dog of the pilots. Now, that drinking bar they hung out with was filled with images of dead pilots who had tried to climb to the top of the ziggurat and failed. But no one would even back down from the idea of being on that wall because they didn't care if they died. They were there to achieve immortality, whether on the wall of their favorite little drinking club outside of Miroc or achieve immortality from achieving the top of the ziggurat. The jet age was here, and these were the men bringing it on. These were incredibly dangerous machines, if we haven't already made that clear. 50% of pilots would have to eject at some point during their career, and even just in jet training school, for like pilots or combat aircraft, there was a one in four chance you would die. Can you imagine that? You walk into your office every morning and there's a one in four chance you're not going to walk out. You would have to be insane to take that kind of job. Insane or brave. One of the two. It was an addiction, like daredevils. You could ride the highest of highs, but with it came the lowest of lows. But for these men, that's all that mattered. I mean, it almost had to be all that mattered. The, The stakes had to be just about as high as the highs were for it to be true immortality. And these men weren't paid very well either. They were Air Force guys, you know, government salary. The ziggurat was constructed by these pilots in their minds as a replacement for pay because what the government wouldn't give you, they would give each other. And these were all the ambitions of young men. 
Most of these pilots were in their early 20s, Chuck Yeager included. And all these deaths had to take a toll. I mean, can you imagine going to weekly funerals of your friends? Of men just about the same age as you are in their early 20s? Young men just starting on their career trying to make a name for themselves? This isn't a war either. These are men in peacetime giving up their lives in pursuit of just ambitious goals that don't really have any strategic value. They're pretty much just you know numbers on a wall that say that you did this. That is, except for the sound barrier. That was a real, tangible goal nobody else could break. It was the goal. It was the impenetrable barrier upon which whenever man would be able to cross it, they would be immortal. In that high, dry lake bed at Miroc in 1946, the Bell X-1 was being developed. This was a bullet-shaped orange jet plane. Not really a jet plane. More of a rocket plane. Just with a solid booster ready to launch off. And it was designed for one goal and one goal only. Breaking the sound barrier. And one of the pilots set to fly it was a young 24-year-old Chuck Yeager. But Yeager wasn't immune to the type of activities that went on at Miroc and at Poncho's. Him and his wife, Glennis, were partying for a while at Poncho's, and they realized that there is a bunch of horses around. In the high desert with the Joshua trees, they decided to take him on a ride. Riding around the desert basically pushing these horses like he would push a jet or push his car. He was looking to jump a fence. So approaching with the horse, galloping faster and faster, just like he would do with any other plane or any other car. He's approaching the fence, about to jump, and goes over. But it didn't go as planned for Chuck. As the horse tripped over the fence, knocking him off, and he fell straight to the ground, breaking a rib. Now, what is Chuck to do but to go to the dreaded doctor? Now, Chuck, like every pilot, was afraid of flight doctors. Flight doctors were the bane of these guys' existence. They were only there to tell you insane things like you aren't healthy to fly or you are unable to operate this plane for whatever reason you know real medical issues that guys who were trying to climb the ziggurat were set to ignore so they could continue flying these wild new aircrafts now chuck didn't want to go to the flight surgeon chuck went to a civilian doctor and the civilian doctor told him that he broke a few ribs and he had to keep his ribs and arm from really moving around too much in order for them to heal properly. Now that wasn't going to sit with Chuck because Chuck was set to break the sound barrier in the glamorous Glennis. On the day, Chuck was set to at least attempt to break the sound barrier. He strapped on his helmet, which he had made himself out of a modified football helmet. So new was this flying jets thing that they didn't have proper helmets most pilots were still sticking with their old world war ii leather caps but chuck had built a helmet 
and was trying to climb into an actual rocket with wings named after his wife, where the pain was so bad on his side due to the broken ribs, he turned to flight engineer Jack Ridley and asked for some help subtly so the flight surgeon didn't find out. They devised a little plan of taking a broomstick and building a brace that they could tie around his side so he could actually get into the Bell X-1, fly up in the B-29, and attempt to break the sound barrier. Now, the X-1 doesn't work like a traditional plane, right? It's futuristic. It can't take off from a runway like modern jets can. They mounted it to the bomb bay of a B-29 bomber, and then they would fly it up to altitude where it would drop glide away from the bomber, and then ignite the rockets. It had four individual channels of its XLR rocket engines, each with 1,500 pounds of thrust. These could be activated individually to kind of vary the thrust, but they weren't throttleable. And once you turn them on, they were on until they burned out of fuel. Once they burned out of fuel and the X-1 had completed its flight, it would then glide back to that dry lake bed we mentioned before and roll to a stop. It was reusable, so they could then refuel it, refurbish it, do whatever kind of restocking needed to be done, and then it would be ready to fly again. Now, in most dramatic retellings of this story, such as a certain famous movie uh, that I enjoy, but they kind of leave out the part that this plane had been flown multiple times before. Chuck Yeager showed up on that day with broken ribs, and it was a very dramatic event, but this was part of a test program. They had been flying this plane multiple times beforehand and kind of working up like the profile and testing the performance up to Mach 1. You know, the first few flights were unfueled, just glide attempts to make sure the plane could even like fly at all. And then they kind of worked up firing one engine chamber, two engine chambers, you know, flying with half fuel, all these different tests just to test the performance envelope and test how it performed at high speed. So... This final flight, the one where they're finally attempting to break the sound barrier, had been planned extensively ahead of time. Jaeger goes up in the B-29, ready to attempt to break the sound barrier, ribs broken, in pain. They hit the altitude that they need to be at, unlock the Bell X-1, the glamorous Glennis, and Chuck glides off a bit and then activates Bay 1, firing the rockets, ready to go. Chamber 1 is a go. Speed is increasing, 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 and then the subsequent chambers keep on going. And as Chuck approaches the sound barrier, the controls are hitting near uncontrollable. The plane is rattling violently. The pain in his side is extreme. He doesn't think he's going to be able to break the sound barrier. He is at... 0.99 Mach as the violence gives way to a absolute insane noise that some people thought wasn't possible for a human to go and that was the sonic boom the boom of hitting Mach 1 and officially breaking the sound barrier Chuck that day in October hit Mach 1.5, officially becoming the first human to break the sound barrier, and landing back at Miroc, had achieved the top of the ziggurat for the pilots. And the 
base commanders got in contact with the high brass of the United States military to let them know that the United States was the first country to break the sound barrier. But there was a thing going on in the minds of the high brass of the United States military. Whether it was a holdover from the war of keeping all experimental achievements secret or some way, somehow, to uh, lock down the buzz so it doesn't impact the tightening relations between the USSR and the United States, they didn't want to announce Chuck's great achievement. They wanted to keep it a secret for whatever reason or another. So it was only known amongst the pilots at Miroc that Chuck Yeager had officially broken the sound barrier and it was free drinks at ponchos for Chuck because he finally did it. He finally broke the sound barrier. Chuck was able to celebrate this achievement for a while, but it revealed something. Another ziggurat. If breaking the sound barrier was possible, how far could you go? How much more could you break the sound barrier? Was Mach 2 possible? Mach 3? And if breaking the sound barrier was possible, what if you could go into space? What if any kind of aeronautic achievement was possible? This revealed an even taller ziggurat, one that had even less barriers. And the race began just anew. Chuck Yeager had won round one, but round two was here. The Navy struck back. With their Douglas Skyrocket aircraft, they were able to achieve Mach 2 in 1953. This was the first time anyone had ever gone twice the speed of sound, and it was quite the laurel in the cap of the Navy, as they were now able to claim the fastest man alive, Scott Crossfield, who was a civilian in the Naval Reserves, but was the fastest man alive. He took the next step of the ziggurat, but the top of it couldn't be seen from where men were standing anymore. It was a monumental structure. It was too large to be perceived at this time. Mach 2 was the next step, but... Soon after Scott Crossfield's accomplishment, Chuck Yeager would pilot the new X-1A, which was just an elongated version of the X-1. It had the same engines, it just had more fuel, and it was designed purely to take the speed title back for the Air Force. In an operation titled NACA Weep, Chuck Yeager piloted it to Mach 2.44, almost three times, almost two and a half times the speed of sound, a few days before a ceremony in which Scott Crossfield would be proclaimed as the fastest man alive for the Navy. It was somewhat of an embarrassment for the Navy, but a new height had been reached. Mach 2.44 was possible. Mach 3 was just on the horizon. But the Air Force X program continued with the X-2, hitting Mach 3, but that Mach 3 didn't really count. The pilot flying it eventually crashed after hitting Mach 3, so it didn't count as a safe landing. And that ended the X-2, and there was a development of a new, even better X-plane for the Air Force. But to get more grand, this ziggurat is what every single pilot was chasing up. Whether you are a naval aviator flying off of aircrafts, a Air Force test pilot at Miroc, soon to be called Edwards Air Force Base, or a fighter pilot fighting in the Korean War and 
now flying in the post-Korean War period, whether you were, you know, a young John Glenn, a Marine Corps pilot, a young Michael Collins going through Air Force training in Las Vegas, or a young Pete Conrad flying for the Navy. All these different people were trying to climb this great invisible ziggurat, and they were battling that one out of four odd of dying, not in combat, by the way. That doesn't include combat. That just includes the risk of the job of flying jet aircraft. And new aircraft were being developed all the time, whether it was from Edwards or from any of the major military industrial complex jet manufacturers creating these great Century Series aircrafts, whether it was the Sabre, Super Sabre, or eventually Thunder Chief or Starfighter, one of the fastest of them all, and one with a uh, rough reputation if you don't use it as a high-flying, super-fast interceptor jet. <clears throat> Germany. Anyway, so all these people were trying to climb this great invisible ziggurat, but they didn't know what was possible until the great sky above was calling the name of a country halfway around the world, developing intercontinental ballistic missiles in order to launch nuclear warheads to the United States because the United States had the ability to long-range bomb them. But they had no way to strike back. As the United States had the bomber of its time, the B-29 Superfortress. It had the longest range, it had the most payload capacity. It ended World War II when it dropped nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Soviet Union didn't have the bomb. The United States was able to threaten them with nuclear weapons that they could deliver to Moscow. The Soviets were able to copy the B-29 when a few landed in quote-unquote friendly territory near the end of the war. They were developed the Tu-4, but the engine technology wasn't there. They weren't able to replicate the turboprops, so it didn't have as long of range and it didn't have as good a fuel economy. They still had no way to deliver their newly invented bombs to United States shores as the United States could to them. The United States effectively had a nuclear monopoly even after the Soviets developed atomic weapons as well, as the distances were just far too great and the Soviets didn't have any friendly air bases. So their focus was mostly on rockets. Simple, unmanned rockets. The United States had jet bombers soon. They had the B-47, which was able to fly so fast over Soviet territory, it was used for reconnaissance missions over Moscow and Leningrad. Soviet radars were able to pick up this plane. They knew they were doing it, but what could they do? They couldn't have any fighters intercepted. They just weren't any that were fast enough or could fly high enough. It was humiliating. It was absolutely humiliating, and that was the point of it. It was basically for the United States to show the world we can do whatever we want, when we want. For Stalin, this was unacceptable. They had to have some way of making the Americans fear them. Because they certainly feared the Americans at this point. 
So all effort and resources were put towards the Soviet ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Program. And one Sergei Korolev, who was in charge of the Soviet rocketry program, decided that he would be able to build his pet project, the R-7. So catch us next time for The Men Who Built the Structure, the story of rocket development, the history of this great ICBM race, the men who built that little ICBM situation, and the development of the things used to destroy the world, which eventually led to one of humanity's greatest achievements. I have been Matt. And I have been RC. And this is episode one of the history of the space shuttle. The jocks who built the foundation. Now, you can go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Clio History. You can email us at cleohistorypodcast at gmail.com. We upload a trailer for the start of this series because we're really excited about it. You can check that out at our YouTube channel, Clio History. And you can get us wherever you get your podcasts. If you do like this show, go ahead and share it or give us a review. Thank you very much, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on Episode 2. Thanks for listening.